And it gets weird because you're living in a world at that point where suffering is something to be avoided and yet you are experiencing suffering as grace. Suffering is grace. And you begin to feel very strange. Very strange. Suffering is grace. Very strange. Suffering is grace. It's a whole other sense of identity about your relationship to the forms of, forms the, universe. of the universe. Very strange. Suffering is grace. And I get caught in the reaction and a heaviness creeps into me. The minute I feel that heaviness, it's just like I dove from air into water. I just went from one medium into another medium that's thicker and heavier. I lost it. I know I lost, I know it. I lost it. When you witness a, a dark thought, a dark thought that isn't going to get you anywhere, you witness it and love it. I see them having to have a certain state of mind of a slight cynicism they have to hold on to to be able to play that one out. And finally, your own hypocrisy about any stance you take of being holy or being spiritual or being powerful or any place where you begin to be somebody is solidifying, it's calcifying, it's concretizing, it's taking you from the living spirit and you can't afford it. You can't afford it. Remember, the witness is part of the soul, and the soul loves everything. on thrones, the philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones, a special Valentine's Day edition of Infants on Thrones. It's episode 613, a tribute to Ram Dass, Love Your Dark Thoughts. That was Ram Dass talking about dark thoughts. But, but what are 
dark thoughts. Maybe it's something like, I'm stupid, I'm unattractive, no one likes me, I hate that person, I hate that church, that is so stupid, everything bad always happens to me, I hate my life, I'm worthless. I don't know, are those dark thoughts? How can you love them? I mean, what, what does that even mean, to love your dark thoughts? Does that mean that you desire them, that you're attracted to them, that you accept them, that you nurture and care for them? How do you love your dark thoughts? Is that even possible? Can you really love your dark thoughts? And what would be the benefit of doing that if you even actually could? Now, I don't know the answer to any of those questions, but I'm certainly enjoying the search for them. And I think it's possible. I think it's possible for me to start acknowledging my dark thoughts, to meet them face to face rather than to hide from them, to understand why they're there and what they're doing, or at least what they're trying to accomplish. Maybe to embrace them like I would a child in pain, to think of them as an important and unavoidable experience of life. Maybe to view them as I would dark and stormy weather, part of the cycle of life. To view them as a teacher, to love the lessons that they teach me. Yeah, I think that's possible. But is it beneficial? I, I don't know, time will tell. But I do like the feeling of loving those parts of myself, those dark thoughts, those cognitive distortions, the bad habits of thinking. Loving the things that I had previously judged as wrong, as unwanted or that I'd seen as a sign of weakness and felt shame about. So I, I asked myself this question, you know, if I can reduce self-loathing by loving my dark thoughts, even those dark self-loathing thoughts themselves, wouldn't that create a greater peace of mind? Wouldn't accepting those patterns of thought that are just part of the biological fabric of my neural pathways wouldn't that be a step forward towards being a more whole and less divided against myself kind of person? I don't know, is that what spirituality is? I really like Ram Das. In fact, I started making this episode at the end of December, just a few days after Ram Das pa passed away. And then I just forgot about it, really, until this last week or so. And then today's Valentine's Day, so gotta get the Love Your Dark Thoughts podcast out there. So I'm adding this intro about loving the dark thoughts. And then I'm going to give you the tribute to Ram Dass that I started and I didn't exactly finish it. I chime in from time to time to share with you what I'm thinking about what Ram Dass is saying. It's a message that's been important to me. Um, at least for the ha first half of the talk, I chime in. And then I'm just going to shut up and let him take over for the second half, uninterrupted by me. And, you know, I'm interested to hear what you might think about this. So shoot me an email at infantsonthrones at gmail.com or go to the website and fill out the new beliefs survey. I've enjoyed what I've seen from listeners so far, and you'll start hearing from some of them as well. I've begun contacting them to have some one-on-one -on -one conversations with listeners. And I'd like to hear from you as well. I'd like to love you and your dark thoughts. <laughs> That's what Infants on Thrones is about, right? Infants on Thrones is about loving dark thoughts. I don't know. Well, let's now get to the almost nearly forgotten tribute to Ram Dass. Happy Valentine's Day. Cupid in a diaper was an infant on a throne. So, now you know.
since the road that leads to perdition is wide and spacious and many take it. But it is a narrow gate and a hard road that leads to life. It leads to life and only a few find it. The pull of the world, the pull of desires, the pull of the solidity of the senses and the thinking mind, it's a wide gate. The pull of the spirit seems to be a narrow gate until you're on it. And then it becomes the only way. All right. (laughs) Now, there was a time where I would have heard something like that and just been turned off immediately because it just sounds like the same old, same old stuff that I used to hear in church all the time about uh, the the road is wide or whatever, the, but the, 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 the narrow, straight and narrow path to God. And, you know, you add that to the Book of Mormon, Lehi's dream um, with the rod of iron and the, the word of God and, uh, you know, just stuff like that, which felt very constraining to me. So... You know, right, right from the start, there may be some of you listeners who are like, "What the? What are you doing, Glenn? Why do you keep doing all this stuff with like woo spirituality? This isn't what I come to Infants on Thrones for." Well, maybe it's not, but I, I want to explain to you why that doesn't bother me anymore. This whole image that he's he's starting with, um, and and what it what it means, uh, and and I should say not what it means. Like this is capital T truth that I'm espousing here. I have no idea what capital T truth is. Just my opinion, my experience, that's all I have to share with you. Just my thoughts on it. So the way that I the, the way that I uh, approach what he's saying here this question what is spirit? I, I like that that's probably the biggest biggest piece of this. What what actually is spirit? How can you talk about the world and and he talks about those things that you're able to observe with your five senses that become very real to you but then there's also spirit what like that just that sounds like magical thinking that sounds like woo how, how can i become comfortable with that well what what i've done to become comfortable with that is to think about spirit as energy and and energy is what we're all made of uh the, the energy that is in our atoms or that makes up our atoms, or that makes up our subatomic energy. We're, we're all, we are all energy, and, and all of these atoms and molecules and cells in our body that are vibrating, constantly oscillating, this, this energy thing. Once I stopped thinking about spirit and matter as two separate things, and started thinking about them, oh, as they're the same things. There's not, you know, so, so I remember Scott years and years ago, on, on an early episode of Infants on Thrones, introduced me this idea of dualism. I didn't, I didn't know what dualism was when Scott first talked about it. This idea that there is uh, a material world and then there's also a spiritual world. And he says, I, I reject this idea that there's a spiritual world. There's, there's just a material world. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Because this idea of, of spirit has been used in, in church teachings to try and make me, uh, try and control me. And I, I don't want that. I don't want that anymore. So I just hated the idea of spirit for a while. But I don't think of them as separate anymore. I, I, th- I think of, of spirit and the spirit in the body or living a spiritual life as trying to identify not with 
what the energy in my body is doing to create my mind and the way that I think and the way that I perceive, the way that I'm aware, the way that I'm conscious of the world because with, with my senses, because that's just a small fraction of what this energy is and what this energy is doing. But, but trying to use my imagination, and that's all I have, is trying to use my imagination. And this is why I get into these uh, discussions with Tom about fictions and what is real and these kinds of things. Because it's just a, a trying to imagine what would it be like to experience existence from the point of view of the subatomic energy that makes me who I am and that makes you who you are. What, what's, what would that be like? Because that is a real thing. The only way that I can experience it really is to imagine it and try to pretend what it might be like. And, and that's where I find value in stepping outside of my own perspective and thinking about, okay, what, what else could be going on outside of just what I'm aware of, just what I'm conscious of. So when he says that once you awaken to the way of the spirit, it becomes the only way, it's kind of like, you know, when you leave Mormonism and you, you can't not see things the way that you now see, you can't, you can't squeeze the toothpaste back into the tube, so to speak. Um, you can't read the Book of Mormon without thinking, oh, wait, there are a lot of anachronisms in here. Uh, you can't read the, the, the book of Abraham without thinking, oh, oh wait, this was made up, <laughs> you know, like the, so for me, taking this view of spirit, um, I can't not think that way or, or feel that way now. So it has kind of become the only way. The pull of the world, the pull of desires, the pull of the solidity of the senses and the thinking mind, it's a wide gate. Pull of the spirit seems to be a narrow gate until you're on it, and then it becomes the only way. The power of the way, says the Tao. You know, my first name is Tao, Tao Glenn Austin, right? I, I'm not the one who said the power of the way, but I mean, Tao. <laughs> says the Tao. The power of the way, meaning the living spirit, will come into you when you are empty, like a valley or canyon, and therefore receptive to it. And I think the only time that I've really experienced this much is through meditation. And I'll, I'll meditate for maybe 20 minutes um, and really try to still my mind. And, um, I, I think that's when just kind of, I don't know, stopping the chattering in my, in my head, that's the closest that I come, that I've ever come to what he's describing here, where I'm just kind of like being and kind of going with the flow instead of trying to, um, understand it. And, um, you know, all, all those things that I do in my head. All of those thinking games. You will then be sensitive equally to good and bad as they concern you. And will be able to test everything for its worth. In the end, you will come to terms with the effortless worth that is located in the distant past. What is that? What, what is the effortless worth? I, I, I like that phrase, effortless worth. That comes from the distant past. I don't really know 
what that means. What does that make you think of when you hear that phrase, the effortless worth from the distant past? Maybe it's everything that needed to happen or everything that did happen in order to bring you to this particular moment. You know, if, if, if I'm picturing myself meditating, sitting in, in meditation and my mind stills and I just kind of, I'm listening to the birds around me, I'm aware of the sound of traffic and the, I can feel the air on my skin and I'm just kind of in that moment, I'm just being with that moment. Um, there's a sense of, of gratitude that I'm there in that moment. And so perhaps what he's referring to is, is also a, a gratitude and appreciation for how wonderful everything was that led up to this moment for me to be able to be in it and experience it. Uh, even would that then include even being born in the Mormon church and going through all of that that I did because all of that played a role in bringing me where I am. And I'll tell you, it's much nicer to be able to to look at the Mormon church and my experience in it from the lens of gratitude rather than anger and victimhood and feeling like I was lied to and betrayed. Um, that's nice. In the end, you will be like the valley, which is the favorite resort of the way. Becoming receptive, becoming soft, becoming open, becoming tuned, becoming quiet. And also from the Tao, the line, there are ways, but the way is uncharted. Meaning there are methods, but the living spirit has no map. And, and what is the living spirit? The, the way that I interpret it, the living spirit is what all of this energy is doing, what, what it's creating, the experience of living as I experience it through my, my mind, my five senses, as I'm living and experiencing what this energy is doing and creating, not only in myself, but all around me. That's, that's, that's what I think of when I hear him talk about living spirit. And all the methods to take you from here to there are based on what it looks like from the beginning of the journey to even conceive of a there. For the spirit cannot be conceived of. It just is. It just is. You and I have started a journey, maybe in this lifetime, maybe in past lifetimes. We've touched the relative nature of the physical universe. Once one touches it, the next question any Westerner asks is, what do I do about it? How do I have it for my own? And the answer, of course, is that you can't have it for your own. You can just become it. You can die into it, but you cannot control the living spirit. You have an experience of high. A moment later, it is a memory. It's another moldering butterfly to add to your collection. I, I love that, that language. Another moldering butterfly 
to add to your collection. Like any, all of these moments that we go through, all of these ups and downs, they're all temporary, all transient. Our, our whole life is just temporary, this little blip on the, the, on the universe, right? So when he's talking about the, the spirit, you can't really conceive of it. I mean, think about what this subatomic energy is and does everywhere, not only in, in this small little slice of, of life that we're experiencing, but on the other side of the world, at different times, uh, different places in the universe. I mean, just like, what is this whole thing called life and existence and the, the energy that animates all this stuff? It really is inconceivable, but you can be it when you recognize the, the part of it that is you. And what I've found is if I can accept that every moment is like another moldering butterfly, that, that I may have this strong desire to latch on to, hold on to something that's good or beautiful, some kind of an experience that is uh, e e elating, and I don't want it to pass, but then it passes, and, and then I feel bad. Uh, because I wasn't able to hold on to it forever because it passed. Accepting that things just just pass, that they move, that everything's temporary, uh, it, it helps me in those times when I'm feeling down. I think that's what he's talking about here. So every time you grab an experience of a high and cling to it, you are just putting a thought form between you and the living spirit. Because any memory you've held on to of the high moment in your life is keeping you from this moment and right here is the living spirit if not here then nowhere this isn't preparation for later you're not collecting this for somewhere else wait what so you mean this isn't the lifetime to prepare to meet god i don't know what was that scripture in alma this life is the time to prepare to meet god whatever so no we're not preparing for something that's to come. We're always in, in the moment that we're in and reaping the benefits of everything that came before, but always in that moment that we're in. Uh, I like that idea. This is what it's about, right this second. Everything you've been in all your incarnations, everything you've learned in life, what you ate for breakfast, all of it, preparation for this moment here, right now. This is it. This is it. All right. And this is the second time, really, that he's invoked this idea of incarnations or like a reincarnated life. You know, maybe it was we started this journey in this life. Maybe we started in another one. He said that earlier. Um, that I, I'm not quite sure what to do with that. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Um, do, I, do I accept that the energy that makes up who I am, the atoms in my body, have, have been building blocks, energetic building blocks of other things, other people. Sure. I mean, very strong probability of that. Does that mean, like, I, I don't get the idea of a soul. I, I still don't, like, I, I like this idea of source energy, but the, the idea that there's like a soul, there's like a one-to-one -one connection between every person that they have like this soul, I, I don't, that, that doesn't quite... I don't know. That doesn't make as much sense to me. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about that idea. But I do know 
from my own life that I've I've already lived multiple lives in in this life. Like I've I've worn I've worn many hats. I've had many roles. I've gone through many stages of development. And so if I think about the different incarnations of myself from the time that I was born in 1972 till now, I can think of many, many different incarnations, many different versions of myself. That's mainly where I go when I hear him talk about these things. Is it possible that there's some kind of uh, consciousness or memory or thing like that of, of past lives? I've had um, some listeners send me some pretty interesting um links that that I'll be exploring in future episodes. Summer, I'm I'm looking at you. Thank you Summer for for the things that you've sent. And um so is it is it possible about uh past lives those kinds of memories uh could be, could be. But I I I don't want to get too derailed on that because it takes me away from um just kind of the peacefulness that I feel when I listen to, to Ram Dass talk about this progression of someone who is getting on a path to spirituality. And, and of course, he's talking about himself. He's talking about his experience and the experience of people who he's known. And that may or may not mirror my experience. It may or may not mirror your experience, but it's something that I find valuable reflecting on. So let's go back to that. Until there is the spaciousness that says, yes, ah, so. This is it. Ah. Ugly, beautiful, boring, confused. Dead, angry, dark night of the soul, brilliant light spirit. Just the way it is. And in just the way it is, is the spirit. Not in the way you think it ought to be. So you grab at it, and you grab at experiences, and it's called spiritual materialism. And you get some powers because you see more than other people see because you're a little quieter than other people are and you see the relative nature of reality so you don't get quite as stuck and you get powers and you've always felt inadequate and not good enough so you love your powers and you play with them and you say, I'll do that for righteousness. You know, I, I, I have to admit, I think a little bit about Joseph Smith in this point. I, I think about myself as well and I, I think about like the the anybody that kind of puts themselves in a position where they would say, you know, whether it's a professor, a teacher, an, an expert in something where, you know, I've got this expertise and, and people defer to it. And then you kind of get too big for your britches. Um, that's, uh, I, I think this is the getting too big for your spiritual britches part of, of the Ram Dass lecture. Um, so I, I don't know. Do you, you think what he's describing here could kind of fit Joseph Smith. Maybe somebody, sometimes he felt a little inadequate in who he was, um, but he had this, this power of persuasion. People were interested in him. He was able to do this stuff with the treasure seeking and being a seer and predicting and putting on a show and um, wowing and marveling people and coming up with ideas that really stretched uh it, it invalidated them and and you know like there's no doubt that that's what early mormonism was no doubt to me that joseph just turned on everybody around him they just were like my ancestors that flocked to the mormon church on all sides of my family i mean i'm generations deep 
in this thing? What was it that they were attracted to? They were attracted to this, this man, this prophet, Joseph Smith, who had these powers. You can put that in quotes if you want, powers, quote unquote. But he wowed them. And then what happened? Too big for his britches? And, and now $124 billion britches that are pretty, pretty, pretty big? Too, too big to fail? Too big to be taxed? I don't know. I'll do it for the good of all people, but it's still you using your powers. And finally, you using powers takes you from the living spirit. And you'll find that. You can't be told that because you'll still want to play. But you will find as you play that moment when everybody's saying, oh, you're wonderful, do it to me. And you're busy, I will do it to you. You will feel how far you are. And then you will not be able to stand See, once you have tasted of what it's like to be with the beloved, to be in the spirit, you can't stand it. You can't stand to be away. And finally, your own hypocrisy about any stance you take of being holy or being spiritual or being powerful or any place where you begin to be somebody is solidifying, it's calcifying, it's concretizing, it's taking you from the living spirit and you can't afford it anymore. Just telling you how it is. You know, this is just the way things are. And so you kind of get a little discouraged and your faith flickers because you had the experience, you thought you knew, you took a stance to represent how you thought it was and then suddenly it's all dead and horrible and ugly and empty. And, and this feeling that he is describing right now of being discouraged and having it be all dead, you know, this this thing that... You felt a spiritual connection. You felt that there was some kind of spiritual power. And then for whatever reason, there's some hypocrisy that comes up. Maybe it's your own hypocrisy that you become aware of. Maybe it's the hypocrisy of others that you become aware of. But I think this is a pretty common narrative for a lot of listeners of Infants on Thrones that have become disillusioned with Mormonism, disillusioned with religion, disillusioned with claims to spirituality, because you see the hypocrisy, you see the, the pain that it causes to others, you see the way that it takes people into ego and getting too big for their britches, <laughs> you know? So I think what he's talking about here, um, a, a lot of listeners uh, can relate to. I certainly can and your faith flickers and you say I've lost it and at times when the faith flickers and you're part of an organization or a belief system or a technique that's when you become more fanatic in order to reinforce your flickering faith you try to convince everybody else that it's true so when you feel that fanaticism in another human being you almost know immediately that their faith is flickering there's a book uh, written by, I think it's Leo, Leo or Leon Festinger. I think it was in the like 1950s, 1960s. It's called When Prophecy Fails. It was so influential on me. It was, it was a book that I read years ago in graduate school. And what Festinger did with some of his graduate students, they infiltrated a UFO cult group that they were getting channeled messages from some alien intelligence that said, we're going to be coming to earth at this date, this time, be ready. We're going to come pick you up. 
And this group was so excited about it. And, you know, they didn't know that they had these little moles, <laughs> the, the graduate students that were just studying them. And the graduate students were just thrilled to be able to get this information on the ground. So the, the date and time came, the aliens didn't. And what happened? And th this is why the book's called When Prophecy Fails. Instead of people going, okay, well, I guess that wasn't true. They, there, was, there was so much of a, a sunken cost into their belief. They, they went out and they started proselytizing. They brought in new converts. There was a new, new prophecy, new revelation that came. They go, oh, it didn't happen on this date because I, I, X, Y, Z. It, now it's going to happen on this date. And then everybody like redoubled their faith, redoubled their effort. The, the numbers uh, increased because the members of this cult were out proselytizing and bringing in new people. And, and, and the idea that Festinger promoted, this is, this is the, the man who created the, uh, the phrase cognitive dissonance. This is where cognitive dissonance comes from. That these people, when faced with their own disconfirming evidence of their belief, rather than accepting that their belief was wrong, they bring in other people to believe it because, oh, if you can get other people to believe it, then it must be believable. So what Ramdas is talking about here, he's talking about the exact same thing, that when people, their faith starts to flicker for whatever reason, there's this inclination to bolster the belief by bringing in new believers, you know, how many, how many of you were missionaries? <laughs> how many of you as missionaries, like whether you were a full-time missionary or you were a, a part-time missionary or like the every member of missionary, having conversations with your friends with the secret hope of winning them over and converting them, how much of that might have been fueled by your own doubts? I, I know mine were. I, didn't, I couldn't recognize it at the time. I definitely couldn't recognize it at the time, but I, I can look back now several, several times on my mission where words would come out of my mouth, answers to questions that part of me was like, yes, that is an, that is an inspired, divine answer to question. You just nailed it. And there was another part of me going, really? Do you, uh, do you really actually buy that? Are you really, you know, <laughs> this weird, weird experience. I know other people have had it, but I just doubled down. And uh, went, went on for that proselytizing. So anyway, just another interesting little parallel to Mormons and ex-Mormons uh, here from Ram Dass. Because when the faith in what you're doing is perfect, when you just are what you are, you don't have to convince anybody of anything. Wow, wouldn't, wouldn't that be a nice place to be? Are you there? I, I'm, th this, is, this is my goal. And I think in some areas I'm, I'm there where I, I don't feel like I have to really explain why I act certain ways or justify my behavior because I just, you know, feel like it's the right way to be. And I just be it. I just be that way. Uh, I'm getting close. I, I'm, I'm getting close. <laughs> and it's funny because it reminds me of uh, just these pathetic arguments that I used to have years and years and years ago with my ex-wife where either she would get mad at me or I would get mad at her and it would be like, I'm not talking to you again. I'm not talking about it. I'm not going to say another word as we continue to talk about it and continue to say another word. And it dawned on me at one point, if I really felt that way, 
I wouldn't feel the need to tell her. I wouldn't feel the need to declare that I've fed up with it. I'm fed up and I'm not going to take this anymore. I would just do it. I would just be fed up and not have to declare it. Anyway, funny little aside. Faith flickers and it's often followed by what's called the dark night of the soul. I lost it. You have depression. And then you say, well, I'll just go back into the world because the whole thing was phony anyway. And there are like a million different ways that's said on ex-Mormon Reddit, right? <laughs> the whole spiritual trip was a hype. And all those people in the world that said there was nothing to it were right because I've lost it and I'm not going to get screwed by not having anything. At least I'll have the world. So you go back into whatever part of the world you can grab onto again. You know, and I find it interesting that he's talking about going back into the world. Because I think he's, ta he's thinking about a person who comes into like this new age spiritual movement from some different identity and they, they have these experiences and they're really turned on and touched by what they're hearing and what they're learning. And then they have this moment of disillusionment and then this dark night of the soul that he's talking about. So then they go back to where they were before. Now, probably the majority of listeners to this podcast don't really fit that model because we were born into the Mormon church. That was our home. That, that, you know, so like, where do you go back to when you have that dark night of the soul? That's hard. <laughs> that, and, and I think that's why there's so, so many different, so many different paths that people take. Once, once the, um, one, once there is some kind of awareness or understanding that this aspect of the Mormon church isn't what they told me. And you can't unsee that. And then it, it grows. And for a lot of people, it unravels. Other people find a way to like, okay, I'm just going to put this on the shelf. It's going to be okay. I'm going to keep, keep at it for this reason or that. There's just so many different reactions to it. But for those who walk away, where do you go? What do you do? <laughs> where will you go? What will you do? You don't really have like the world to go back to, to go back to. You're going into it for the first time. And a lot of times without a, a roadmap. And uh, wow, that's, that's a challenge for a lot of people. And we've, we've had so many listener essays on Infants on Thrones over the years of different listeners telling their experiences with that very thing. So as we're honoring Ram Das with today's episode, I also want to honor every single one of you and your journeys with this and your experience with it as well, because uh, it's not an easy thing. And that's called, as Krishna Das once said to me, the phony unholy as opposed to the phony holy. <laughs> because the problem is that once it's happened, you can't forget it. You might try, you might sit at a bar and drink and lust and talk about soccer and fast cars and look for rushes and trips and more and more rushes and trips but you won't be able to forget because once you've awakened you can't get back to sleep fully you can do pretty well <laughs> you do pretty well but you can't do it totally you just can't do it totally and at this time because you have this heightened awareness and this ability to stand back a little bit from your whole trip, 
you begin to explore all of the things that you've held in before and you explore relationships and you explore sexuality and you call it Tantra and um, <laughs> and you sort of see what you can get and what you can enjoy and you come back much more into enjoying. You see the problem was that a pendulum must swing and when you first have the experience that awakens then you read about the spiritual models and you hear about them and you buy them with your mind because the Western intellect is so leading the heart that you tend to buy how you ought to be ahead of when you're there. So you buy that I ought to be, say, a renunciate. And a horny celibate is no closer to God than a person that is acknowledging. In fact, the person that's acknowledging their lust is from my point of view closer to God than a horny celibate. And so after the pendulum went to one side of being, appearing to be something, the phony holy, now it swings the other way and there's the phony unholy. Because you pushed away your fascination with the world prematurely and you're still fascinated. To me, this is a, a testament to being true to who you are without judgment. You know, instead of what he's talking about is adopting some someone else's uh, creed of here's what spirituality is, here's what you you need to do in order to be spiritual or whatever it is that you're trying to be. And it's not really who you are, it's not really where you are, and then you start um, feeling like you're not measuring up or, you know, like, or, or you're just not really ready to... Uh, be a renunciate because you're too fascinated with these other things. Um, being really true to who you are, I think, is is an important piece of this um, spiritual journey. This spirit, whether whether it's a spiritual journey or whatever kind of a journey it is, like being true to who you are, without judgment. Uh, to me, that's that's where it's at. That's that's the nirvana that place of no wind, that place of, place of peace and stillness where you just, you're just who you are and it's all okay. Whew. Yeah. You still want to know what's happening. You're still looking outside in the world for something. You're looking for love. You're looking for relationship. You're looking for stimulation. You're looking for knowledge. You're looking for a titillation. And as long as you're looking for any of that, you're pulled into the world. As long as there's anything that your eyes can tell you or your ears can tell you or your nose or your tongue or your skin can tell you or your thinking mind can know, you're still being pulled into the world. And there's no way you can make believe that you are not and get on with it. You've got to be the incarnation you are. And the more true you are about where you are, the faster the transformation happens. That's the karma of it. I'm just describing karma. I'm not talking about will. I'm talking about karma. I mean, I know lots of people who went through an awakening, joined groups, chanted, prayed, went to ashrams, and now they are scuba diving and having cars, fast cars, and just living very much in the world and looking for more and more trips and more and more sexual exploration with their extended marriages and so on.
and I see them having to have a certain state of mind of a slight cynicism they have to hold on to to be able to play that one out. But they have to play it out, and when they finish playing it out, they will be done. And you can feel that they've finished, but they don't want to give up. You try to milk it for one more rush, <laughs> one more trip, just so I can get a little more out of it. I mean, it was good all those years. Why not once more? And when the trips start to fall away, if you're like me, you get really feeling angry and depressed and gypped. Because you look around and everybody, you see the, that ignorance is bliss. You see that everybody's getting fun out of bowling and you don't want to bowl anymore. And you don't have anything else. It's the dark night of the soul when you have lost the world and you're not yet tasting deeply enough of the spirit. And it's a heavy period. There are a lot of heavy periods in this journey. And comes along with all this a kind of a deeper and a deeper understanding, a wisdom, a deeper wisdom. So you're understanding sort of how it all is and why this is all happening and that yes, the trips will fall away and it still hurts because there are still the veils of attachment, of still wanting not to die into the spirit. Because the awakening was merely the foreshadowing of the death into living spirit. It's not the death. It's just the foreshadowing of the death. I'm just describing to you the stages of dying into spirit. Because only when you are spirit is there no death and no birth. And then you are. And you become who you truly are. You know, I, I'm not completely sure, I'll be honest. I'm not completely sure how to practically apply this. I don't, I don't really know. But what I think he's saying, what I think my experience with it is, I'll, I'll put it that way, is that the more that I ad- identify with this energetic part of who I am, this, this energy that is, is what we all are. It's, it's omnipotent in the sense that it is the power that can be ev- everything and is everything. So it's the power that's omnipotent. It's the omniscience because it knows how to do all that. <laughs> it's like the DNA behind our DNA. It knows how to be a flower just as much as it knows how to be a person, as much as it knows how to be a piece of plastic. Uh, you know, the more I identify with this energy, the less the things in the world that seem so horrible and threatening to me seem horrible and threatening to me. And I think that's what he means by dying into the spirit, is that, that recognition that these things that seem like they matter ultimately don't matter. Death will happen. It happened to him a couple of days ago. He passed, passed over into living spirit. And life goes on. And um, yeah, I, I think that's the, you know, how, how is it? Because I think that the goal for all of this stuff for me is how do I calm my mind? How do I get rid of that? Or not get rid of, but accept. How do I find peace with the anxieties that I feel? With the worries and concerns that I feel? 
And what he's talking about here is this, this is how to do it. This is a way to do it. Identifying with living spirit, dying into spirit. I don't know. That, that's what I think it means. Submitted to you for your consideration. What do you think it means? And it's at this point, as you understand more and you see your predicament and you're acting out all your stuff, that your understanding of the way karma works makes it almost impossible for you to continue to act in ways which exploit others or which create karma for other human beings. And it starts to temper your behavior. The commandments start to be real for you, not as things you ought to follow, which is the way you've done it all your life. I ought to be good. As if you need to have these external controls to repress the internal stuff that is not acceptable to you. And finally, all of the precepts or the commandments or whatever they are become sort of obvious to you about that's the way life has to be because that's the way it works. It's merely a statement of how it works. Because the more karma you create, the deeper you dig your hole of suffering. It's as simple as that. And there is a point where you really want to clean up your act and you start to look for fire of purification. And that's when it gets very interesting because you begin to think that lurking in you was a tremendous masochist because suddenly you are looking towards those situations that push you, that push your buttons, press your buttons. Instead of running away as everybody else does and as you've always done, you suddenly sit right with them. And you say, boy, is it hot. In the Ramayana, in the Valmiki version of the Ramayana, when um, Ram, God, has finally rescued Sita, his wife, from the bad guy, Ravana, and they are together, some people start to whisper it abroad that, after all, she lived with this bad guy for quite a while, and she probably wasn't true to Ram. She probably made it with him, the bad guy. And she says she doesn't, but Ram is the perfect king at this point, and he realizes that if there is dissension among his people, that that's not being the perfect king, and that he's got to do something about this. And he confuses to what to do, and Sita says to him, look, I have been totally pure in this, but if there's any doubt, build a huge fire, and I'll walk and stand in the middle of the fire. And if I've done anything wrong, I'll be burned because impurity will get burned. And they build a fire and she stands in the middle and not even the tip of her sari gets burned. Or of her dress. She just stands there because gold is not affected by the fire while all the impurities get burned away. So you begin to see that life's experiences will only be too hot for you if there is a you that's trying to protect yourself. The living spirit is not vulnerable to life's experiences. So when you are who you truly are, what fire is too hot? That's what Christ pointed out. He said, look, watch, I'll get nailed up. Far out, see, you think you're doing something to me? Call me names, laugh at me, psychological taunting. You can even kill me, go ahead. I'm not vulnerable. It isn't who I am. He was making a clear statement about what living spirit is about. And since you know the handwriting is in the wall of who you're going to become, 
finally the purification process just goes on and on. Not in a heavy way, not in a righteous way. Not in a righteous way. Not in a, I've got to do this to myself. And getting tight about it. Not that way at all. A very humorous, delightful, playful, soft way. The minute you get ahead of yourself, you'll be righteous. So a lot of our job is slowing down enough to let our heart come into harmony with our minds so we don't keep getting ahead of ourselves. We don't keep getting ahead of ourselves. So you clean up your work, and the cleaning up is what goes on and on until the very end. And sometimes you've got a lot of psychological stuff to clean up. And it gets weird because you're living in a world at that point where suffering is something to be avoided and yet you are experiencing suffering as grace and you begin to feel very strange. Because at that point your suffering or just the way life has been handed to you is absolutely just the way it is. And no longer are you saying it ought to be thus and so. You're just taking it as it comes. And at that point, your attitudes towards everything in life start to change. Your attitudes towards pain, towards death, towards abortion, towards the end of the world, towards all of it, just keeps changing and changing and changing. Because you're looking at it from an entirely different vantage point. You are now in the world, but no longer primarily of the world. The balance has shifted in terms of your consciousness moving from outside inside. At this point, some of your forms of livelihood change because you look for ways to earn your living in a way to be dharmic. And sometimes you stay right in the same games, but the whole quality of the game changes. And you can be a lawyer, but it's a new kind of law. You can be a everything, but it's a new kind of everything. I was at a meditation retreat and we hadn't started the retreat yet and we could talk just those few minutes before the retreat began and I was in one of the bunks and he was in another bunk in the same room and I said to this fellow what do you do and he said I'm a vice president in a bank in San Francisco in charge of industrial loans and he says but it's an interesting story he said I was a vice president in a San Francisco bank in charge of industrial loans 10 years ago. And then I couldn't handle it anymore. And I dropped out and I left my family and I left the job and I went off and I took a lot of acid and I wrote poetry and I lived in communes. And I did that for about eight years. And he said, then one day I was walking through San Francisco and I met the president of the bank. And he said, Gee, isn't it amazing that I've met you today? It turns out that your desk is open again and you were the best vice president we've ever had. Would you consider coming back? And I thought, why not? So I shaved off my beard and I got my tie and the whole thing and got cleaned up and I went to work. And I said, well, is it any different? He said, it's entirely different. He said, before, I used to be a vice president in charge of industrial loans. Now I'm a being that goes to this place and I hang out with people all day long. And we're together and the vehicle for us to be together is industrial loans. Right? So instead of hating the job because of his identification, he's now seeing it as a vehicle. And if you can think of a less appealing vehicle from the spiritual point of view, I would find it hard because people come wanting something from you very materially. 
And yet in every situation is the opportunity to meet living spirit if you are looking with those eyes that see. Because every human being in some way wants to live in the spirit. That's what the whole game is about. And whether they're buying a Cadillac or trying to get a bigger rush, the rushes, if you look at what the rushes are, the rushes are to take you out of yourself. Whether it's sex or motorcycling or scuba diving or cooking a bouillabaisse or whatever it is, it's always to get you to that place where you get out of yourself. I just got so busy crocheting, I just forgot myself. Same space. And you work with that fine line between testing God and trusting God. It's just a very fine line there where you're pushing the limits all the time to see how bad you can be without falling out of grace versus getting to the point where you're just allowing it to be and trusting you're not going to lose it and you don't have to test it. You just have to surrender and open to it. And it's at this point that you begin to appreciate what it means to start to have a very clean game. And you understand what Don Juan means when he talks about being an impeccable warrior and how you have to clean up your act so you are clean dharmically on every plane of your game. And that's what we keep hearing. I keep hearing things I've got to clean up. I've just got to clean up this and that. And it's all just a mopping up operation, really. It's just cleaning up the sloppiness in the game. And you get so that if you say you're going to be somewhere, you're there. Personality stops being that interesting to you anymore. Protecting your own power position. You know, and you begin to feel that if somebody else is playing a power trip on you, that's their problem. If you get caught, that's yours. So you begin to see that your job is to be impeccable without demanding that everybody else be impeccable. You don't have to say, I'll only be impeccable if you are. I'll only be on time if you're on time. I'll be on time. If you're late, that's your karma. It's okay. I'll stand and I'll sit with God for a few minutes. Do mantra. And as you get clean, you get clean, but it's still not the living spirit. It's impeccable, but it's not yet the flip. It's a kind of a plateau that comes. And in the cleaning and impeccability, you begin to see what parts you have to play in your incarnation, what your responsibilities are to parents, to children, to country, to religion, to all of the reference groups of which you're a part, if you're black or if you're Chicano or if you're a woman or a man or whatever, whatever reference group you have, you have to honor that in some way. You don't identify with it. You don't get lost in it, but you have to honor it. And honor it means you have to acknowledge its existence and render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. You have to live with it all. You can't make believe it isn't. Because every time you push something under the rug, there is a karma cost. And if you're going to be an impeccable warrior, you just got to be an impeccable warrior. And to be impeccable on all planes means that the planes have to all be integrated finally. And so if I go into a plane of consciousness in which I see that you and I are in fact the same person, 
the same being at some level. We are merely in two different forms of it. Then, if I come down into the plane of separateness and I act as if you are not the same being, I am not being impeccable across planes, if you understand that. In other words, I'm impeccable here and impeccable there, but I'm not impeccable here and there at the same moment. Now, what does it mean to live here with the knowledge that you and I are one? Well, it's a fierce one, and it leads to a lot of changes in lifestyle. It leads to things like voluntary simplicity. It leads to a simplifying of life, because a lot of stuff you look at, like, for example, I'm connected with a thing called the Seva Foundation, which is concerned with blindness in the world. I know, from the meetings in which this was discussed, I know that there are 60,000 people in India at this moment who are blind means they have to be led around they're totally not able to be part of the workforce except in a very very peripheral way and their blindness could be alleviated by a four-minute operation that would cost five dollars now if you can imagine what it's like just close your eyes for a second and feel what it's like to be blind Okay, and think of living your life this way, knowing that for four minutes and five dollars you could have your sight back. Okay, now when you know that statistic, what did you use your last five dollars for? Or is that person that's blind them? Or is it us? And if it was you that was blind and you had five dollars, would you use your five dollars to heal that blindness? Or would you use the five dollars to go to a movie? You wouldn't go to a movie if you were blind. To, uh, to, to buy a pizza? How about to buy uh, an extra shirt? How about to put a third of a tank of gas in your car? To go riding for the afternoon with somebody else driving, I assume. You begin to see the relative nature of the values and how it changes the minute you realize there's no them, there's only us. The following words of Gandhi are in large letters at the shrine area of his cremation place in Rajgat. These are cut in stone. Recall the face of the poorest and the most helpless man whom you've seen and ask yourself if the step you contemplate is going to be of any use to him. Will he be able to gain anything by it? Will it restore him to control over his own life and destiny? That's a hard one. To run each act you perform through that. And if it's done from the wrong level, it's righteous. And if it's righteous, there is anger because you feel you're losing something. And if there is anger, you're ultimately hurting that man even as you're helping him. So remember the timing of the game. Don't get ahead of yourself. Just keep it all in mind. Don't get ahead of yourself. It's such a delicate dance. Such a delicate dance. But at the point where you begin to have the wisdom to see all these planes and realize that there is no way to stand when you're just open to not standing anywhere. Every act you perform is Taoist, is in the Dharma. It comes out of the totality 
of your inner being, because each of us has to find the way we will manifest. You can't manifest the way I manifest. You can't mimic or imitate another human being. You've got to hear what your unique position is. There are people that are at a moment in history where they are just at a place where they have an opportunity to play a part. Like Lincoln played in relation to slavery. And Maharaji said, you know, Lincoln was a great president. And I said, yes, Maharaji, he was. And he said, because he knew that Christ was president. He was only acting president. Okay. Are you a mother? God is the mother. You are only acting mother. Do you have money? It's God's money. I'm only the treasurer of the corporation. It's a whole other sense of identity about your relationship to the forms of the universe. To be impeccable begins to appreciate your identities in your family, in your country, to all humanity, to the cosmos, to the earth, and so on. It was a time when Mahatma Gandhi was the senior advisor to the Congress Party in India. And the English had become very oppressive, extremely oppressive to the Indians. And the Indians finally realized they just had to get rid of the British. Here were the British, the most powerful nation in the world. And they came to Gandhi, the Congress Party came to Gandhi, and they said, would you help us? What do you suggest we do? And he said, I don't know. He said, I'll have to meditate on it. And he went into meditation, and after a week they came and they said, Well, Mahatmaji, what do we do? And he said, I don't know. I'm still meditating on it. And a month and a half later, they were all totally furious because politicians want to have an action to take. And he kept stalling and stalling, saying, I haven't heard it yet. And finally he came out and he said, I heard it. And he just started walking towards the ocean. The British had imposed a tax on the Indian people, a salt tax, which meant that they had to buy salt from a British company, even though salt was readily available in India. And each Indian family had to spend up to two weeks of their income for salt a year, because it's a hot country and they needed the salt. And Mahatma Gandhi just started marching with his followers, about 70 people, towards the ocean. And pretty soon more and more people joined them and people were lining the path. And he just went there and he finally got to the ocean. And he went in and he took his bath, purification in the mother in the ocean. And then he came back up and he walked up on the shore. And he reached down and he picked up a handful of salt, which God had deposited on the ocean edge, but he was mining his own salt. He was breaking the British law. And that one act of picking up a handful of salt, within a month, 60,000 Indians had been imprisoned for mining their own salt. And that single act was the major turning point in breaking the back of the British. The most powerful country in the world one scrawny old man went and reached down and picked up one handful of salt. And his statement 
is important, I think, for us. He said about that Acts, he said, there comes a time when an individual becomes irresistible and his or her action becomes all-pervasive in its effect. This comes when the person reduces himself or herself to zero. He wasn't doing the act. The act was merely being done through him. Whole interesting space. Because he knew Christ was president. He was only acting president. That's the zero part of it. And Gandhi also said, God demands nothing less than complete self-surrender as the price for the only real freedom that is worth having. And when a person thus loses self, that person immediately finds self in the service of all that lives. Such service becomes his delight and recreation or recreation. He is a new man or she is a new woman, never weary of spending himself or herself in the service of God's creation, which is the statement, not my, but thy will, O Lord. And how that manifests into daily life. I went through a period where I felt that my work was to just quiet my mind and open my heart. And I took courses and I spent time in India and I meditated. And then I felt I could hear Maharaji saying, Maharaji used to say to me, Ramdas, you shouldn't be with people very much. You should be alone. You should take your food alone. You should eat alone. You should be alone. So I went back to the hotel after he said that and I put a sign up in my door, do not disturb, and I stayed in my room. And two days later, a couple that was with us had a fight during the night. The next morning they were with Maharaji. Maharaji said, you were fighting? And they said, yes. And when were you fighting? During the night. Well, did you go to Ramdas? No, he had a sign, do not disturb. You didn't go to Ramdas? He wasn't there for you? And he looked at me with disgust. And I was about to say to him, but Maharaji, you said I'm supposed to be alone. And in those conflicting messages is the message. Because at first, you have to be alone by pulling back from people. And you do it, and then you pull back, and then you hear Maharaji saying, serve people, feed people, so you come out. And then you get stuck in the being with people, and you pull back. But you understand what the game is, finally. The game is to be with people and yet always be alone. You always sit, you always rest in your own being. Maharaji said your only friend is God. And you ultimately stop looking for it all out in the world because you're just busy being it. You just are it. Then you're ready to do what needs to be done. Your body and your mind and your heart become really instruments of the process. For a long time in the 60s, there was a great schism or schism between the social action people and the spiritual people and you either joined Hare Krishna or you went and fought the Chicago police and uh, everybody was misunderstanding everybody else and we all knew everybody was a good guy but it was you're not a good guy like I'm a good guy so it's not good enough 
And then over the years, our compassion deepened a little bit. And we began to hear each other much better. Because we were busy denying another part of ourselves. And a lot of the people that were in the political activist group realized that as long as they were acting out of anger to change something, out of the anger of the injustice, they were perpetuating the anger. That an angry person lives in an angry world. And that somehow they had to be able to make a strong statement of opposition to another human being and yet have love in their hearts for that other being at the same moment. And they realized that, they understood it, and they started to work on themselves. And on the other side of the coin, those of us that were busy finding ourselves quiet and peaceful, but realized we hadn't honored our incarnation, and we had to take part in the play of the world more and more. And I found myself about a year ago at the Rocky Flats nuclear plant protesting with a group of people, and I participated in the writing of a statement. We all went to Rocky Flats and just sat in meditation right in the middle of the protest. Just sat down and breathing in, breathing out, and then walking meditation, then sitting meditation for about three hours. And it rained and everything. We just sat there. We are meditating here today because we feel that a quiet mind and an open heart are the optimum conditions for social change. What we want to say is that we have no enemies either here at Rocky Flats or across the Pacific Ocean. We are all part of the same organism, striving in our own ways to maintain the health and unity of the whole. It is the nature of our beings as individuals that defines the quality and power of the statement. By focusing on each breath, we are affirming the dignity of life in the simplest way possible. We extend our compassion to those everywhere who live in fear of nuclear annihilation and may we all experience clarity of mind and learn to share it constructively with each other. Now, social action is only one part of the dance because we face anywhere from another five minutes to, in some cases, maybe another 50 years of experiences in life. And those experiences may go in any direction. There may be some terrible holocaust. Maybe there'll be a nuclear bomb dropped in Chicago and it'll spread over every place and all of us will become diseased and will become crippled and maimed and we'll spend years in suffering. And maybe there'll be years of peace and prosperity and we will all have to deal with the experiences of plenty and the discontinuity of us having plenty and others not. And you've got to stay conscious at all these levels all at once. Whatever experiences are going to come down the pike, as people say to me, is the Armageddon coming? Or is this the Aquarian age and it's all starting? At the beginning of the new age or is it all going to hell? And I answer sort of like Ramana Maharshi answered. Ramana Maharshi's answer was, what are you worried about the future for? You can't even be in the present. Because if you're in the present moment, that's the best preparation you can do for being in the future. For whatever the future will hold. If you're living right here consciously, that's the optimum strategy for preparing for the future. Because if I say to you, the world is going to end, I just have information. 
that the button has been pushed and the bombers are coming and it's going to land here in like three minutes. What are you going to do? Go to the toilet? You're going to call home? You're going to pray? Because everything you have been up to this moment, it's that thing about Gandhi and the railway station, my life is my message. That was his message. My life is my message. Whatever you are at this moment has to be ready to die and ready to live. And if you're not, you get on with it because that's the only thing you can do for however the world's going to come out. Like Uspensky describes in In Search of the Miraculous, how he's decided he's going to stay conscious. See? And he's walking down the street saying, I, Uspensky, am walking down the street. And he turns into a certain street and he says, I am turning into this street. He's walking down the street and suddenly he sees the shop of his tobacconist. And he thinks, oh, I'm out of pipe tobacco. And he goes in and he gets the pipe tobacco and he goes on. He completely forgot the whole exercise. And a day and a half later, he remembers he was doing an exercise at the time he saw the tobacconist. And so he starts all over again. You will forget again and again and again and again. And you will remember that's the way the game is designed. That's the process. Because if you didn't ever forget, you wouldn't have taken incarnation in the first place. So don't knock yourself so hard. It's just the way of it. You just keep working with it. So you quiet your mind. And then you open your heart more, more and more and more. See, the way it works with me is it's a lot like judo. Here's the way it works. When I'm around people that are all light and playful and spiritual and all, it's wonderful. I mean, it's just, I'm flowing all the time. It's beautiful. But the minute I'm around people who aren't, who are tight and hung up and it's all solid and it's all real and they forgot the folly of it, and they say something solid to me, and sometimes I buy it. I react. I react. And I get caught in the reaction and a heaviness creeps into me. The minute I feel that heaviness, it's just like I dove from air into water. I just went from one medium into another medium that's thicker and heavier. I lost it. I know I lost it at that moment. I may not even know how I lost it. Somebody will walk down the street and I will look at them and there may be a look in them. For example, they may be suffering terribly and I get caught in pity and I lose it into pity. I may get lost into lust. I lose it in a lust. I may get caught in anger. I lose it in anger. I may get caught in spiritual greed. I lose it into spiritual greed. Somebody comes along and says, you know, there's a teacher that I can't tell you about the name, but if you are on the street corner at third and market at a certain time, you will be taken in a car to this place where you'll get a secret initiation that will change everything. See? And your little heart goes, see? and it's got you. It's got you. You want something. You lost the faith a little bit. There's a flickery desire. There it is. It grabbed. Every time something grabs in me, I just feel that heaviness start. And the minute the heaviness starts, that heaviness becomes the stimulus that awakens me. 
I don't even know what I'm heavy about some of the time. I don't even care. I don't even have to get into the content of it. I just feel the heaviness and I immediately go into whatever my technique is. Breathing, mantra. Doesn't mean I stop the anger or stop the lust or anything. It goes on, but I am bringing myself into consciousness right in the middle of it because the thing itself awakened me. In judo, the punch of someone else becomes the energy you work with to defeat them. You work with the energy that comes at you by moving with it rather than going against it. And the minute something happens that takes me out of consciousness, that is the vehicle that reminds me to awaken. And you just train yourself so that you get so that you use life that way. It's merely a device because at that point you just want to be with God. It means you want to be in this clear, light, loving, present space. When you witness a, a dark thought, a dark thought that isn't going to get you anywhere, you witness it and love it. You love your dark And I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Remember, the witness is part of the soul. And the soul loves everything. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.